Dynamic Decisions, a podcast for practice advice and patient insight, presented by chiropractic and naturopathic doctor. Today, we will be discussing supporting immune function with our special guest, Dr. Victoria Coleman. Dr. Coleman is a 25-year veteran in healthcare delivery, both clinically and in business development. A graduate of the Canadian Memorial Chiropractic College, Victoria has successfully run two wellness clinics delivering healthcare from an integrative approach. Victoria is certified in functional medicine and also holds a master's degree in human nutrition. Ultimately, encouraging proactive healthcare is a passion for Victoria, along with a love for fitness. Welcome to the podcast, Victoria. Thank you, Janin. Happy to be here. Before we start, we'd like to acknowledge our sponsor for this podcast, Designs for Health. Designs for Health is committed to delivering high-quality nutritional supplements and educating healthcare practitioners about their optimal therapeutic use while also assisting them with tools for their practice development. Their Science First Foundation is demonstrated by their commitment to promote research-driven products, synergistic formulas, and clinically relevant quantities of therapeutic ingredients. The quality ingredients, efficacious doses, and company integrity are what practitioners find most compelling when choosing Designs for Health as a brand to work with. Designs for Health lives and strives to develop one goal, designing a well world. So to kick things off here, Victoria, because we have recently changed our masthead from Canadian chiropractor to integrate naturopaths as chiropractic and naturopathic doctor, We obviously serve two professions with different prescribing abilities and ultimately scopes of practice. So why should both DCs and NDs and other healthcare professionals for that matter, why should they know about immune support and what's the kind of baseline they should know or acknowledge when we're talking about immune support? Right. I think it's I think it's great, first of all, that you're addressing both of the different scopes and uh, practitioners. But I think ultimately, when we look at this, um, the overall intent for each of these practitioners remains the same. And it's the health of the patient. And particularly, quite often, not just in uh, treatment of any concerns they have, but in health promotion or health optimization of the patient. So I think it's both both categories are looking at their patient's to not only be free from disease, but optimize their overall health, well-being, vitality, and wellness. So as primary providers, we're responsible, whether you're a DCND, we're responsible to guide and direct and teach our patients, educate them, uh, whatever that may entail, to be able to live a healthy lifestyle and improve their overall health outcomes. So immune support, I think, in particular, I think no matter uh, whether you're a DC, an ND, or any healthcare provider for for that matter, understanding immune function is imperative right now. And especially when we look at what's happened in autoimmune disease disorders, which is now actually one of the most common diagnoses categories ahead of cancer and heart disease. Um, In particular, we've seen rises in these chronic autoimmune conditions in the last 20 years, and even more so uh, in a short period of time. We've seen increases of 7% in rheumatoid diseases. Um, We've seen 6.3% increases in endocrine autoimmune disorders such as type 1 diabetes. In neurological autoimmune disorders like MS, there's been almost a 4% increase. Celiac is another one. Canada alone had nearly 8% year-over-year increase uh, in the last 20 years uh, in pediatric inflammatory bowel conditions. So I think overall... Understanding immune function 
is imperative. And uh, it's certainly looking at the forefront of what we're seeing with what our patients are struggling with. So it applies to healthcare, not just the ones you mentioned, but all healthcare providers. So I think baseline, that's a good point. What do we need to know? What do we need to understand? And I think that we need to understand overall and recognize the role that lifestyle factors and personalized attention to these uh, are so important and maintaining um, an approach that can cover off actionable items for a patient to be able to alter in their lifestyle to improve their overall immune function applies to all of us. And so when we're talking about immunity, immune boosting versus immune support, I mean, we hear all these kind of buzzwords going around. So I wanted to ask about the importance of language and avoiding these buzzwords when speaking with patients or for that matter, even posting about things on your professional or clinic websites. Um, there's a lot of negative press and ne- negative media with regards to scope of practice with chiropractors and naturopaths. So can you touch on just the importance of the language and kind of what perhaps the proper language is to use when we're talking about immune support? Sure. I think immune support is a good way to say it, supporting the immune function of the body versus saying immune boost or having a more direct immune outcome. I think it's better to use terms such as immune support because that's indicating whatever you're doing is to help the body support itself in its ultimate goal. And support sort of indicates that role towards balance or homeostasis. And I think that is a more appropriate way to language um, what we're aiming for. And it's Looking to support immune function in the body is just one of the physiological areas of leverage that we're looking to when we're working with a patient. So it's not relevant to only one time and space or one critical moment in time that might be um, heavily focused in media. It's really about maintaining that function for the individual lifelong and maybe using the terms such as immune immune support because support indicates, again, reaching towards homeostasis. You're not looking for some individual. It's maybe better to look at this as an immune modulation. It's some people may require a dampening and some people may require uh, an upregulation. So I think when we use that term support immune function, it really does cover the basis for the individual's body to reach its own response that's necessary to bring them to homeostatic balance. And when we're talking about homeostasis, is that a word that you would use with your patients? Um, would you explain what that means? How are we describing these things to patients when we're talking about immune support? Well, I think I think there's never been a better time or a more appropriate time to define that because if we if we look at what's happening right now, I mean, we certainly can't avoid the elephant in the room. We have COVID-19 affecting many of the practices and how we're going to articulate things to our patients. And if we're saying that we are increasing immune uh, strength or we're, it's not maybe the right approach right now to use that terminology, people may get confused because we understand in something like COVID-19, there can be a hyper response in the immune function that we've all read about in the cytokine storm. It's more an example of a pure, uh, poor immune response or poor immune resolution. So for instance, when the body is 
is dealing with something, there's some sort of foreign invader or there's something that it's challenged, it will then obviously engage with the immune response, which then has an inflammatory response, which is all very positive in the way it should go. But then it should also have good resolution. And that's when the immune response starts to quiet and bring itself back to a homeostatic balance. So you could be in various um, situations where you don't want to use the term necessarily increasing the response because that may, at that point, it may create some fear around this over-response and cytokine storm that we've seen with COVID-19. So I think in using homeostasis says that it brings the body to be able to respond appropriately to the challenge and be able to resolve appropriately to bring us back to a state of health. And yeah, touching on that, um, again, with this language that we're using. So, I mean, obviously, if we have uh, healthcare professionals saying, like you mentioned, that we're strengthening the immune system, kind of, or boosting the immune system, can create a false sense of security in some patients in a way, especially during a pandemic like we're experiencing today with COVID-19. So they may say, you know, I'm, I've strengthened my immune system, so I'm going to refuse to wear a mask. I'm going to be not so careful about being six uh, feet apart from someone because my immune system is strong. So what's Im- most important for healthcare professionals to clarify when talking with patients? And I think you kind of did mention this is, you know, homeostasis, using that language of supporting the immune system like, are they, are they less at risk? Like, are you able to say that? How, how do you have that conversation with a patient? I think, first of all, no. I don't think having an immune system or empowering patients to feel they can do something to improve their immune function will create a false sense of security. I, I wouldn't agree that that's, that that's what it's doing. As a matter of fact, I think it's extremely important to empower our patients to feel confident in their body, to feel confident and rely on their immune system and not feel that the locus of control over their health is outside of them. If anything, I think empowering them to understand they have influence over their immune function can help encourage some self-responsibility towards their, to the actions that they take. At the same time, I think instilling fear um, that people's systems can't can't endure this is going to raise uh, a stress response, a sympathetic stress response, and if anything, is going to disadvantage their immune function. So I certainly am not saying that if you are educating people on how to improve their immune function, that they are now invincible and somehow able to get away with uh, not practicing smart, careful measures. Um, That's not what we're saying here. I think it's prudent to certainly take personal responsibility over things such as washing hands and staying at home if you feel compromised or if you're in a category where you may be at high risk. Uh, that's, those are important measures you need to add to the toolbox. So I think it's not um, an absolute one or the other. I think it's important we empower people to feel some control over their immune function, give them tools to feel confident, not to have um, this invincible feeling, but certainly feel that they are doing what they need to and have some self-responsibility over it. Finding your place in this very challenging, unprecedented time and knowing with accurate information 
what you can do, so, so I think locus of control, again, is extremely important. Living in fear, I think, is not going to be advantageous to anybody's immune function, no matter what. So addressing what the information is, taking it in, bringing that into your lifestyle to be able to do what you feel is actionable on your side that makes you comfortable. And, and that's really where we personalize these things. There are some general practices, of course, that apply across the board. Let's wash our hands more. Let's, um, let's be aware of physical distancing when necessary. Um, if someone is highly concerned, afraid, anxious, ill, whatever it may be, their rationale, are they ones to maybe employ a different measure? Are they maybe more um, comfortable with staying staying at home and those sort of things. So I think we need to personalize it to a certain extent, but we also don't want to make people feel that they don't have any control uh, and that their immune systems for some reason will fail them. I don't think that's advantageous. And so when we're speaking to patients about supporting the body and supporting immunity, lifelong immunity, for instance, if there's a patient that is like, okay, well, I'm gonna stop smoking to support my immune system. I'm good to go. Like, are the, like the effects are immediate. Is it fair to say that just because you stop smoking doesn't mean that you're necessarily supporting your immune system? I think any lifestyle measure that you take that's a positive health effect, such as quitting smoking, is a good thing day one. Does that mean that that equates to a better immune function on day two? I don't think we can answer that. I think it's important that these things build upon each other and things may take time to reach sort of optimal levels um, of improvement for us. But it's never, you would never want someone to feel discouraged by the fact it might take a certain amount of time for the body to react positively. You'd want to start right away. For instance, we know that one of the biggest challenges is metabolic instability. And when we have metabolic instability, such as leaning towards prediabetes, diabetics, uh, type 2. When that's happening, that, that disadvantages the immune system due to inflammation incredibly. But you can make changes. And there has been reversal of type 2 diabetic uh, pictures right within 28 days. So whether that equates to, and now my immune system is better, I, I, of course, making these uh, positive lifestyle changes will help the immune system, but when and exactly where would be a very personal thing. There's many drops of water that go into the glass that would affect outcomes. So either way, you want to quit smoking, and is that going to, in the end, ultimately help that immune system? I think it starts helping at day one. Mm -hmm. And perhaps what my question should have been then are, what are the signs that I'm supported? So for instance, I mean, I'm going to use exercise as an example. When people start exercising, you know, they get uh, their brain fog dissipates. Um, they feel more joyful. They feel like they have more energy. So, I mean, can we even get those signs that we're, our immune system is supported and we feel quote unquote healthy? Can we get those signs from other things such as supplements besides exercise? Exercise is just kind of the first thing that comes to my mind as far as immune support. Right, and some of the things you were discussing, exercise, some of that has to do with endorphin release and, and not necessarily um, directly on immune function. However, feeling good and, and having these positive uh, chemical bursts certainly um, have been shown to help the immune system function better. Anxiety, depression uh, can, can create stress on the immune 
function. Are there things that we could look at? So if we were looking at what disadvantages the immune system, such as, again, I was saying metabolic instability or high blood sugars, um, we could look at markers to say, if, am I on the right track with what I'm doing and can I see this visually? We could check markers such as C-reactive protein. We can check fasting insulin. We can check IL-6 um, biomarkers and say, wow, I'm seeing my body is less inflamed, which we know inflammation is a key a key aspect that can disadvantage the immune function when it's when it's smoldering at a baseline that shouldn't exist. So I think there's some things we could do. We could also, it's been shown when people's immune function is compromised, they may have greater frequency of upper respiratory infections such as common cold or herpes uh, outbreaks. So there's some signs that things might be going a little off. And there's, if you notice an improvement, if that's what you had been struggling with, then there may be signs, wow, I'm on the right path now as I'm getting less of these things, or my sleep is improved. Baseline inflammatory smoldering fires that are going on disrupt circadian rhythm and they disrupt uh, healthy sleep. That's a sign right there. If things are not in a great shape for immune function if you don't have those sort of basic things covered off. So I think those could be little markers an individual might assess. Ultimately, when we're speaking about supporting the immune system, obviously inflammation is ultimately what we're referring to. Why is this important? How do you get that message across to your patients? The inflammatory response is a, is a really important thing. So to, to just make this clear, when we do get an infection, our immune system reacts appropriately. And part of that reaction is inflammation. But then after that, downstream is resolution of inflammation, and that's a healthy immune response. And what can be a problem for that is that if you have a smoldering fire going on and, and this baseline inflammation all the time, then you're basically raising the roof, so to speak. So something challenges the body, the immune system does its appropriate response. But if you're already sitting at a four out of 10 for an inflammatory level, and the immune system reacts appropriately, but it tends to produce a lot of inflammation as it might rightly need to, it can blow the roof off, if you know what I mean. It can, it can raise the level past what would be considered a very healthy response for us because we were already at too elevated of a baseline. So controlling that sort of non-purposeful inflammation in the body all the time is really key to maintaining a good response and not going into the state of hyper response. So I think that addressing inflammation and baseline inflammation, keeping it at a minimal to low level is really important because inflammation and the immune system are intimately tied. Touching off of that, I would be remiss if I didn't mention this because there's been a lot of research rather recently between the connection between the immune system and gut health. Uh, in what ways are the immune system and our gut health intimately related and how can we approach this with patients? Right, this is a really good one because we've there's been so much research over the past 10 years, let's say maybe even a little further than that, but then the microscope went on it probably last five years is really on the gut microbiome. And nobody, I think, understands this better than the naturopathic community, uh, the importance of a healthy biome and, and gut. I mean, you consider that there's there's more 
genes these bugs have than human DNA. And we have bacteria and fungi and protozoa and all kinds of things that are shaping our immune function on a daily basis in a healthy manner. And truly, our, our gut is the biggest immune organ of our body. 70% of the immune system is in the gut. So having more bacteria than human cells tells us we're obviously this is an extremely important system that we should be supporting. Pathogens enter our body all the time through our intestine, and our intestine has to be so clever to be able to allow nutrients in and at the same time be able to protect us from, from invaders. So it's an interesting, intelligent, I think, area of the body that has quite a bit of work to do and has to do it with, in a non-inflammatory way because it's doing it every single day when, when we're bringing nutrients in. I mean, our epithelial cells uh, in our gut are like little microbial sensors, and they're releasing chemicals all the time to recruit uh, the immune cells when necessary. So overall, our, our gut microbiome, it provides us nutrients. It defends against its pathogens that come our way. Uh, it helps break down substances for digestion at the same time. So our immune system is designed to help control our gut biome, but at the same time, our microbiome also controls our immune system. So there is a, a balance, a symbiotic balance. And so what I would tell people is that there's no question we need to support this and how do we do that? And it's, it goes beyond just using probiotics. That might be one of our strategies, but it's supporting the growth of that biome appropriately with pre and probiotic foods, maintaining healthy gut barriers, so looking at things that could impact that, such as gluten and chemicals, medications can interfere with that. And another one is the diversity in our food choice. I think that we've come down to a society of eating um, basically grains and flours and oils and um, limited food diversity, and we need to, to really feed that um, diverse microbiota with, with some diverse foods. And there's various ways we can do that. So I would recommend people recognize how important their gut function is. So don't dump garbage in or you're going to get, you're going to get a garbage out response. And how can we do it is increase your fiber, increase healthy fibers that help bacteria make the short-chain fatty acids that ultimately then decrease pro-inflammatory cytokines. They also are really important in inducing antimicrobial proteins that help break down uh, coating on, on viruses, bacteria. So these, these are really easy things to do. And they're things like eating more prebiotic foods. You can eat inulin and beta-glucan, avocados, asparagus, garlic and onions have uh, prebiotic components to them. Uh, oats, barley, flaxseed powder. And then maybe eat more probiotic-based foods, which are found in our fermented foods, things such as our sauerkraut, kimchi, natto, yogurt. Um, these are ways that we can bring a little bit more to our gut biome and support that so it can do its job and have this crosstalk with our immune system. The quarantine or the, uh, the social distancing happening, I've actually seen quite a few people uh, kind of experimenting with fermentation and someone's making kombucha, someone's making kimchi. So I think that's a, a positive. <laughs> It's amazing. I love some of the positives that come out of the, the situation we're experiencing. I mean, it's the human experience. You can choose to find the positives or you can sit in most of the negatives. But if people are cooking more, hey, I'm happy because the more you're doing in your kitchen, you're probably doing your, your metabolic health uh, a big favor. 
and um, another favorite of mine, sauerkraut. So uh, I haven't I haven't been brave enough to make these things, but I'm lucky enough to be around um, some areas that produce these, and I can pick them up. So I'm pretty pretty lucky that way. So again, spinning on the positives when healthcare professionals are talking to their patients about supporting their immune system. What are some best options that they can suggest? So I'm going to start with non-supplementation right now, because I know supplementation is a big component of supporting the immune system. But as far as non-supplementation goes, what what does the research say um, helps the most? So this is, this is one we can answer. I'm going to say, I'm, I'm going to say one word, um, obesity. And as much as that seems to get the blame for everything, I think it's really important we talk about this and, and really relate it to metabolic stability. Obesity is sort of the obvious one that we can see, but it really comes down to how metabolically stable, and which, by the way, many people can be completely um, unstable in their metabolic function and be, and be thin. They don't have to be obese. We have things called skinny fat. So I'm not certainly saying that that's the only thing, but it is a big one. As a matter of fact, when we look at what this was uh, just released in April, and it's the World Obesity Federation said obesity-related conditions um, certainly are, are finding the worst outcome with COVID-19. The Center for Disease Control and Prevention has noted that there's a higher risk of SARS-CoV complication in the severely obese, and it poses a higher risk for, for severe illness. So we can't we can't deny that we're seeing that this is affecting that population base far greater with with a negative outcome. So I think we need to really look at metabolic stability and what does that mean and address how we're eating and clean things up. And that's one of the pros about being back in the kitchen. Maybe we're not relying on these starchy processed foods and high sugar foods that we often find uh, quickly available for us in our fast food industry. So what we know is that we certainly understand the immune system does not work well in a high glucose environment and that metabolic instability really down-regulates uh, the immune function. As a, as a matter of fact, is a 10 times greater mortality rate in people that have metabolic syndrome with, compared to those that do not. So it, is, it certainly is affecting things significantly. And how do we know? Well, how do we know if we're at that risk? So maybe we're not aware that could be us. So I tell people when you're dealing with your patients, just look at some of these signs of metabolic syndrome in general. Um, some of the objective measures you can be looking at going back to what defines it is central obesity. Do they have central obesity? So that makes you also think about the skinny fats. Um, people who are walking around and appearing like more of a, a bird body, thin arms, thin legs, but have this overflowing midriff area. Um, so visceral obesity is, is a key thing. What are their triglyceride levels? We know that if those are elevated, that's one of the criteria that fits metabolic syndrome. Their HDL may be low. Their blood pressure may be not optimized. Um, the criteria says 130 over 85. I personally still say 120 over 80. And anything above that, you need to be aware. Fasting blood glucose is another one. Um, to be honest, using fasting insulin is probably far better earlier marker of instability than using blood glucose, which takes longer to show. But those things, I, those five things I just commented on, if your patients have three, they are probably heading towards that metabolic instability. And that one is a, that one is a definite 
smoldering risk. And some of the questions you can ask them are just, are you fatigued a lot after eating? Do you feel best after eating frequently? Um, do they suffer with carbohydrate craving or hypoglycemic-like episodes? These are all little windows in that we're running towards metabolic instability, which equals inflammation. And we already talked about how inflammation, smoldering baseline inflammation, is going to create a problem for the immune function. If we're looking at what can we do as recommendations from a non-supplement point of view, let's make it simple because the simpler the better. Let's look at things like our food. Let's look at our stress. Let's look at sleep, our environment, and our movement. And these things are all really important because they all affect inflammation and many will improve your overall sort of immune surveillance of your body. Um, let's, let's not forget adipose tissue is it releases inflammatory cytokines. So if we have a lot of adipose tissue, we're firing out all the time a low level of inflammatory cytokines. I mean, adipose releases leptin. Leptin activates the immune system and recruits macrophages and releases cytokines at times where it's um, not necessary and it's causing a dysregulation in your immune function. So to me, it's, it's the most obvious. It doesn't mean it's the easiest, but if we give the tools to our patients, it doesn't have to be hard. And some of the tools around eating that I comment are uh, keep things really simple. Um, if you count more than five ingredients on something, maybe don't, don't consume that. And as a matter of fact, why not go, go all out and try to have a week of eating nothing with a label. Uh, count how many steps it takes for your food to end up on your plate. If you think it's over three to four, don't eat it. If, if it's not just something you could go pick from the garden or get some produce wash. Maybe you, you steam it and eat it. That's a couple of steps. But if you're into five, six, seven steps for something like a, a chicken finger or whatever it may be on your plate, I would, I'd recommend reconsidering that. So that's, that's the big one is the food. And then I think the other really important thing we need to be looking at is sleep. Um, sleep is something that we maybe don't give the, the credibility to for how influential it is on your health. We're starting to see more discussion around sleep, but when there's sleep disturbances, it increases inflammatory disease risk. And circadian rhythm in, in general has been shown when it, there's a disruption in it, you will magnify the inflammatory response to endotoxic challenges. So the body is reacting differently to, in, to invaders when you have this disruption. And another interesting thing is that it's not just, a, if you have it once in a while, that maybe you, your body can accommodate. But when someone is under persistent sleep loss, loss or they're an insomniac, um, there's a lot of stress in their world and they're constantly losing their sleep. It shows that there's a shift to enhance pro-inflammatory cytokines ongoing, constantly. So there's no let up. And the other thing it showed is that when we are not getting into a restful stage three or four, which is considered slow wave sleep, which is our restorative sleep, where the body can go, huh, I can, I can fix things now and repair things and bring things into action that need, need attention. If you're not spending time there, you're not repairing as well. And we know that Unfortunately, the immune response is affected, and when somebody is, is in that situation, the first thing that goes down is their time spent in slow-wave sleep, and therefore the result is a decrease in their immune response, 
And it's been shown that it actually affects uh, the, the level of their immune cells, their, their T cell levels, and reduces natural killer cells. So, so a lot said around just trying to reiterate the importance of sleep. And, and by the way, get to bed early is um, something we were probably told as kids and is not a bad thing to consider. It's been shown through studies that if you retire around 10 p.m., you will have your most beneficial time spent in that slow-wave restorative sleep. So people who are those night owls, I understand it might be difficult to shift that rhythm, but it has really been shown being in bed between 10 and 11 will maximize the, the time spent in that slow-wave sleep, which then has a positive immune outcome. I think, I think another one on that, Shannon, is, is I, I just have to say is we've talked diet, we've talked um, trying to lower that overall sort of smoldering fire through diet, sleep, very important. But the other one we can't ignore is stress, and especially right now with what's happening. And stress yeah. has such a negative, negative influence on the immune response. Now, and when I say that, let me rephrase that as chronic stress. Because in short bursts, stress actually give the immune system that little boost and reduce inflammation. That little burst of cortisol can do that. It's over time, having elevated signaling of cortisol ongoing then dampens sort of the receptor response and starts to increase inflammation ongoing. And stress has been shown to decrease our, our lymphocyte counts. It will increase our exposure um, and expression of viruses. It's been shown to increase people who have, again, cold sores as an example. When they're under high stress, these things, these things obviously become more, more prevalent. But we need to find measures to calm our our body down and bring it into a state of more parasympathetic and we want to do that and whether that's using adaptogenic herbs whether that's um i have something called muse which i'm a poor meditator so this has been extremely helpful and it's a headband that monitors um brainwave activity but it has feedback for you that you're using on your cell phone as to when you're sort of drifting off and brings you back again um so those are measures that might help people deal with the stress that they're, they're under right now and ongoing and address that to, again, try to create some better advantage on the immune function. So it's funny you mentioned Muse because I actually have one in my closet and I have not yet broken it out. <laughs> I have to have not, a conversation about Muse. <laughs> we must because it's not doing you any good in your closet. I know. <laughs> um, so obviously, very good points you brought up about as far as non-supplementation goes um, for patients to support their immune system. But let's talk and touch on supplementation. Um, can you walk us through the most recommended or perhaps those with the most supportive evidence for supporting your patient's immune systems? So I'm going to max you out at three. Um, okay. And perhaps these are the most recommended or these are the three most that can help with immune support in general. Uh, maybe just touch on how each one helps, perhaps dosages and contraindications if you can as well. So this is going to be another big overarching answer. Okay, I'll try to I'll try to simplify it and, and give the best I can give them, in my opinion on this and what research is is leaning towards. So first let's clarify that we're looking at Supporting immune function. So we're not talking about what are we doing from a supplement side if we are indeed in the middle of um, working through an infection. That may be very different. So instead, we're, we're looking at 
prevention and creating improved function. We're not looking at treatment because those are different. If, if somebody, let's say, had an active infection, dosing and some of the things we might do may be different than what we're going to talk about. So I'd rather look at it as sort of a general, what can we recommend to most of our patients from a safe, preventative, optimizing function point of view? Right. So I think the first, uh, first one, vitamin D, our love affair with vitamin D just continues. Um, vitamin D is something that we've all come to understand. The early days, yes, it supported bone and had wonderful outcomes for skeletal function. And, but that's really grown. And we've seen the numerous influences on health function and gene expression uh, from vitamin D. So there is signaling effects vitamin D has on inhibiting the inflammatory cascade. Actually, that was found in 2012 that it had a direct effect there. More recently, the role of vitamin D in not only facilitating, but importantly, attenuating cellular immune response uh, has been found. So, and specifically in respiratory infections. So vitamin D may contribute overall um, if you're deficient to the development of respiratory uh, infection. So vitamin D is one that has um, multiple pluripotential effects. Um, we have receptors on just about every cell in our body for vitamin D, but how does it really work in specifically in today's sort of topics and how can we make sure that we're in a moving in an optimized state? And really when a pathogen is detected, we have our innate immune response kick in. And this is really essential. It's our early response right away. And um, sometimes you don't even realize this is happening. And that's led by those macrophages. But in a time when there is a challenge, they start to increase their uptake of vitamin D. And this increased uptake in vitamin D then causes an increase in the vitamin D receptor activation and in the expression thereafter of some of the enzymes, liposomal enzymes that we use in defense. So overall, it activates uh, the immune system. And if you're deficient in that, you're going to be not as uh, effective in that activation. So I don't know that we knew years before that macrophages were a big user of vitamin D and then triggered a, a down response thereafter that kicked in the immune function or immune response uh, more effectively. So it's activating these antimicrobial enzymes and they depend on the right level of vitamin D. And then on top of that, I was saying it attenuates. It's been shown that we know that once the immune response happens, we need to let it do its job and then we need to find resolution. Well, that might mean that we need to then calm things down. And vitamin D can attenuate the production of pro-inflammatory cytokines, maybe potentially decreasing the risk of some of that cytokine storm that we've been hearing about. Another mechanism too with vitamin D, um, vitamin D is really important in your gut barrier. So it's, uh, it's important to keep those tight junctions, gap junctions, adherent junctions in the, in the gut lining. Um, in their healthy state, and they rely also on vitamin D. So it has these direct immune effects, and it has indirect effects, um, such as affecting that gut barrier, which is so essential, as we talked about before, as that can also be a first place for pathogen entry. So vitamin D continues to be our, um, you know, our winner here, and uh, and it's simple. It's it's inexpensive. It's easy to take. 
And I recommend, and what the research is recommending from sort of a regular prevention strategy can be between 2,000 and 3,000 international units per day taken with food as, again, it's a fat-soluble. And that's your prevention strategy. There are other research papers out there suggesting much, much higher levels for a period of, of three weeks to sort of load the system and then to back back down again. And I always think a strategy around that would be better to test and find out what you're at first before you decide to take these uh, more orthomolecular doses. You might be wise to, to have a, a vitamin D, a serum test done and see what your levels are at. But overall, I'm comfortable and the research is suggesting between 2,000, uh, 3,000 international units daily in an optimized, uh, um, out, that's what you're looking for is an optimized outcome. The other one is zinc. And this guy is, um, again, just one of our minerals that may seem kind of boring, but zinc is really important and actually is um, considered deficient. One of the, the other nutrients that's considered deficient in our population. So, and it's considered when low to be associated with severe uh, impairment to the immune system, both the adaptive and innate immune system. And that zinc supplementation can reduce the symptoms of a common cold. However, the real value, and this is right from the literature, is saying maybe in its prophylactic use of zinc, using it regularly, especially when looking at our senior population. And our senior population in the studies were those over 55. I hate to say that I'd be hedging towards that, but that's what they're using as the marker for the senior population. And when they were using 45 milligrams of zinc for 12 months, there was a significant reduction in their infections, their inflammatory cytokines, and their markers in oxidative stress. So zinc is uh, another simple one, but has been shown to be really effective and using prophylactically at these levels that are not orthomolecular levels, these are levels that are fairly easy to obtain um, through supplementation. And zinc is also advantageous, it's been shown with, with little ones too, to a 45% reduction in the incidence of uh, lower respiratory infections in those that were supplemented uh, with zinc in the children population. And how is it really working? It's also considered one of the first responders of the innate immune system and helps with chemotaxis and phagocytosis um, and signaling. When there's a zinc deficiency, um, this is poor, but when they then use zinc, they see it reverse. So it's very responsive into these categories. So supplementation overall can improve antiviral responses and the systemic immunity, especially if someone has been deficient. And it's also been shown to help to inhibit viral replication. So that's an interesting one right now. And lastly, like vitamin D, we get back to the gut. And zinc similarly helps in the epithelial barrier function. But more interestingly, it's been shown that that can also be the case with the lung epithelial cells. So making sure that we have good zinc levels may help to, to strengthen our, our mucosal barriers and, and work from a physical point as well as an immune signaling point. So the dosing on, on using zinc on a daily basis can be 30 milligrams daily can be utilized, but in the senior population, it may be advantageous based on the literature to use 45 milligrams uh, per day for the seniors. And I know there's that worry of copper zinc 
uh, interaction is are you going to create a copper deficiency? So that's something that is a, a ratio that could be tested if you were concerned for that. But I think at these levels, you're not going to be in a situation of having to worry about creating any kind of other uh, negative outcome. But just keep in mind, we just because something's good doesn't mean more is better. We, we understand that, that a lot of the research shows U-shaped curves in these therapeutic effects, meaning that, yes, if you use a certain amount of zinc, there's a beneficial uh, impact to immune function, but using too much then goes the other side and can create a detrimental effect. So hence my uh, recommendations stay in the realm of keeping us at the U-shaped curve uh, most optimized spot, and that would be in that dosing of 30 milligrams. And then I guess you gave me one more, right? I get one more? I did, yes. <laughs> okay, I'm going to go with, it's not the sexy one, but it's the most common and um, probably has, again, so many multiple effects, but it's vitamin C. may seem boring, but let's not give up on the, the ones that have been tested and been around for a long period of time with research and understanding. So vitamin C deficiency absolutely affects immune function negatively and can result in uh, an increased susceptibility to infection. Um, so what's interesting about it too is that when you do have some sort of challenge, infection in your body, it's been indicated that you actually require more vitamin C just because of the metabolic demand on your body during that time. So vitamin C is not only important maybe in initiating immune responses, it can activate neutrophils and enhance phagocytosis, microbial killing, all this stuff we're thinking about that may be important um, in our innate response, the early response. Um, but it's likely more sophisticated in, in that, um, likely in its gene pathways too on what it's affecting because it's it certainly... Um, used up quite a bit when the body is under challenge. So it's been shown that through urinary excretion when somebody's to have an infection, they, they then all of a sudden are starting to see that uh, during that illness time, there's a demand for vitamin C to be increased uh, during the immune challenge. So the body's definitely relying on it and using it. And then, interestingly enough, I can't, can't get away from saying the interest around it, we weren't going to talk treatment, I'm not really saying that, but there is a lot of interest with the vitamin C right now use, uh, vitamin D for that matter too, but vitamin C is being studied in Wuhan University with a, with a study there using 12 grams uh, IV vitamin C with COVID patients. So it certainly has its role in its optimizing and allowing our immune function to be activated and our surveillance to be um, optimized, but it may have a very interesting role from the use and, and the demand that it require, the body requires of vitamin C in, in challenging times. So we have, to, we have to share our love to the old guy, vitamin C, and know that uh, Linus Pauling and all the work that was done is still um, standing true. And if anything, maybe we're seeing more insight into how it's actually working in mechanisms of action with time to come. So the dosing on that, Again, a lot of these can be somewhat individual, but I like to stay in a realm that we could recommend just about to anybody. And 1,000 to 3,000 milligrams um, a day in a divided dose would work very well. If you're taking too much vitamin C, trust me, your body will tell you because you will reach that uh, bowel tolerance and have to take a couple trips to the washroom uh, in a quick manner if you 
have uh, saturated the body and gone over. So this is one we can be fairly comfortable um, in recommending at that sort of dose. So I think to conclude on sort of the supplement use is that I always say, uh, we could do a whole podcast on just the lifestyle things we talked about, um, food, and but really supplementation is just that. It's to supplement an already prudent, healthy lifestyle. It's never in place of. So if you think, well, I can do, I can get away with this because I'll take some extra C. So it's not the way it works. So I think that's just important. And as as providers um, in in the area of integrative health, all of us, I think we understand that. But it's important to to make our patients understand that doesn't mean you get to go out and eat a crappy diet and drink a bunch of alcohol. And but if I take some vitamin C, yay, I'm all better. So it it doesn't work that way. It's to supplement the already prudent lifestyle. Yeah, very, very careful point to make with with patients, I think, especially when we're talking about this large topic of the immune system. I agree. So that kind of concludes all of my questions we have. I think we're about timed out for today. Again, as I mentioned, immunity, immune support, it's a rather large topic. And I'm glad we got to uh, hammer out some questions and some main points with you, Dr. Coleman. So thank you again for joining us on this podcast. Well, thank you, Janet, and make sure you get to your closet and pull out your news. <laughs> I will do that. You have inspired me. Thank you. I'm happy. <laughs> so for any of our listeners, uh, you can find Chiropractic and Naturopathic Doctor on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. If you search for us, you shall be able to find us. So again, thanks for listening. Stay safe.